Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, it's February. It's LGBT History Month as well. So in line with LGBT History Month, we've got a lovely bonus episode for you today with historian Justin Bengui. Justin is the director of Goldsmith Centre for Queer History. And this little snippet is all about the pink pound and what it means. So we sort of discuss the origins of the term, the subsequent problems behind it, and how it stereotypes certain people within the LGBT community. Lovely, lovely episode. If you never listened to the whole thing, just go and click on the link in the bio and you can hear the whole thing. And uh, it's just a lovely, he's, it's a brilliant episode. Be sure to keep your eyes peeled for our very exciting LGBT History Month special, which is also coming up. We're going to be drip feeding bits and bobs throughout the month on socials and here on the podcast. So here it is. Here's Justin Bengry. So one of the things that I think is fascinating that you do, among many fascinating things you do, is um, talking about the pink pound. And I wondered if you would just explain a little bit more, because it feels like such a, a new term, the pink pound, or something that's probably been floating around since the 80s. But Actually, it's something with a long lineage of it's sort of a it's a fantastic route into queer history is what I'm trying to say. Well, exactly. That's what makes it really exciting for me, because, of course, all of us are living in within capitalist structures. This is something that impacts all of us in one way or another. And while we can readily understand how business interests seek out LGBTQ spending um, today, and in the recent past, as you said, from the from the from the eighties, the nineties, from a period at least in this country where people could be more openly LGBTQ, mm. um, while we understand that that exists in the recent past, I think we assume, oh, it must have been completely different in the past. It must not. It must have been too dangerous. It must have been too risky. It must have been just non-existent. They they just had no idea that we existed. Um, and and in fact, what I found by doing my PhD actually in in that area was that businesses were a lot more savvy than we necessarily have given them credit for. And they mm. recognized that there were people who could be identified because of their desires, because of their gender nonconformity, because of the way they stood out differently from other people. And that could be linked to their purchasing habits. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got pretty conclusive evidence of an awareness of, of the existence of what we would today call queer consumers, LGBTQ consumers. They didn't use that language 
earlier in the 20th century. Um, but I've got pretty conclusive evidence of that going back to the very beginning of the 20th century and wow. um, very clear discussion of it by the First World War. How would you define the pink pound? I would define it as any economic relationship between LGBTQ people and business enterprise. Any situation in which queer people are either seen as profitable or where homosexuality, queerness, LGBTQ-ness can be sold. It's the understanding of it sold in certain ways. So I've, I've tried to think about the definition of the pink pound as much more than just trying to secure LGBTQ spending or the how we deploy our economic power. And I mm. like to think about how businesses might profit from that discussion of us, of queer scandal, of titillation, of possibility, of homophobia, all of these things in ways that are profit motivated. Oh, interesting. When, when someone says pink pound to me, in this summary I'm about to give, I'm aware, it, I know that it is more detailed than this, but there's always been this thing of like, well, queer people don't have families, so they have more disposable income, so they spend it on scented candles. <laughs> you know, like that seems to be, there's some of that around, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's the stereotype of, of the dinks, the double income, no kids. Um, oh, and, I love that. <laughs> and, um, and I suppose, especially those of us that are middle-class, cis, white, gay men who are more economically privileged in general, yeah, we do have the resources to go and buy scented candles. And I'm thinking I've got some scented candles downstairs, though some of them were gifts, but probably from other gay people uh, who bought them as well. Um, They're all just circulating among gay people. <laughs> evidently. <and> I, <laughs> um, but I mean, I think this is also a, a problematic stereotype because it kind of looks to the most privileged among us to confirm that there are those among us who are privileged. Um, when in fact, there are many, many LGBTQ people, including cis white gay men who are not economically privileged. Um, mm. And certainly, as we start thinking about the economic marginalization of, of women more generally, and how that impacts upon um, lesbians and lesbian couples, of trans people, of non-binary people, about people who are uh, marginalized for all variety of reasons, that includes a huge chunk of LGBTQ people who are not able to participate so fully in the consumer economy and have questions of survival at stake and mm. uh, and getting by. And I mean, with discussion now about the uh, what we should expect to be a shocking increase in the cost of living in the UK, that will mm. hit LGBTQ people who are economically marginalized quite hard. Yes. And is, is does the term pink pound almost, is it slightly problematic, that term in some respects now? It feels quite singular when really we're trying to open up into including everybody. I suppose for me, it starts a conversation. Um, and I suppose there's always, we should always engage with and critique and uh, think about the terminology that we use, what it includes, who it excludes, and what kind of cultural work that does. Um, so I think we should certainly critique the term. For me, it's a starting point. Um, and yeah. it's something that people understand. So to start with something that is accessible and understandable, um, is, is important. And then we can start breaking down that complexity and those further questions. But I, I, I take your point absolutely. And so long before scented candles were available, when were some of these first instances of seeing the pink pound be 
mentioned or when you found it in history? See, now you make me realize that I have absolutely no idea of the long and varied history of the scented candle. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, this can be your next PhD. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm happy to be an expert witness on that PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would need multiple examiners. So uh. (laughs) yeah. But if we're looking at the um, the longer and more expansive history of the pink pounder, if we just want to say the pink economy or economic mm-hmm. interest in LGBTQ people, lives, experiences, what have you, this certainly goes back more than 100 years. Um, mm-hmm. The first instances that I'm conclusively finding are in early magazines. So the, mm. the, the early men's press, the men's lifestyle press at the beginning of the 20th century was grappling with how to speak to men as consumers, as those who would desire things and buy them, um, while also recognizing that just a few years earlier at the Oscar Wilde trials in 1895, that kind of conspicuous consumption, that kind of showy consumption, elite consumption, was seen as suspect, was seen as potentially indicating um, other abnormal habits. And it was uh, these indulgences in fashion that then could be understood as potentially signaling queerer possibilities as well. So these early men's magazines, just a few years later, are trying to figure out how do we speak to male consumers without compromising either ourselves or alienating them because we're, 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 we're working in this area that's a bit dicey. Mm. And so what I saw was that they were, well, they were trying to have it both ways. Um, they were, they were on the one hand trying to speak to that mainstream consumer without alienating him, uh, mainstream ostensibly straight male consumer, while at the same time recognizing that there were men in London and other major centers whose consumption practices uh, might actually indicate that they're queer um, Mm -hmm. and that they could make some money off of this. So around, I think it's around 1900, I have the editor of one of these magazines saying, um, well, we've been accused of trying to attract, they describe them as something like effeminate men who uh, shop in Bond Street and have their hair curled. I mean, it's using Mm -hmm. all these kinds of codes that we understand today for queerness at the time. Um, mm. and it's saying resolutely to its, this isn't an editorial, so it's writing to, to others saying, well, no, we're not doing that. Of course we're not doing that, dear reader. Um, but then finishes by saying, but if we were, the proprietor of this magazine would be a very wealthy man. So it's signaling both that there's a group of men out there who are different, mm. possibly based on their desires and sexuality. It's not using that terminology, but that's, that's, the, the area that's being suggested. So there's that type of man out there um, that he consumes in certain ways and that we could benefit from that. Mm. And that's roughly about 1900. It's really interesting that it's it's linked to flamboyance, isn't it? And the, the male struggle, because we're talking about specifically gay men here or effeminate men, is... The, masculinity has always struggled with flamboyance you know so men are allowed to have a nice watch (laughs) like that can be or they can have a nice yacht but they can't (laughs) you know this is quite defined what what's allowed to be elegant or beautiful or glamorous you know when in those early magazines then they could have yeah exactly some of those types of consumption were appropriate but then they they were warned off of things like yellow kid gloves pastel colors soft collars Mm-hmm. They were specifically told which fashions, styles, colors, and accessories would be suspect and compromising. 
really? but I think what's really interesting about that is that as soon as you start naming all of these suspect fashions and suspect uh, accessories, you're kind of giving a bit of a, a, a guide to what's queer circa 1900, 1905, and mm. giving a bit of a guide to someone that wants to be on the lookout. Well, yes. what if I see a guy that's wearing yellow kid gloves or a soft collar? Mm. Maybe there's some possibility there. Maybe I should wear those and see who chats me up. Oh, clever. So there's an interesting, we can read it against the grain. And I think actually that some of those early magazines doth protest too much. And on the one hand are trying to say to some consumers, hey, we're manly and okay. And to others saying, here's how you might uh, uh, strike up a conversation with someone interesting. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Get in touch with your History Month stories or memories you have. Full episode is available to listen on the feed and on the link in the episode description of this here episode. All right, everybody. Happy History Month. Bye now. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Powered by Spirit Studios.